Hello and welcome once again to Let's Talk About Public Code, a show where we talk to members of our community who are actually working with public code. My name is Jan Einarli and I'm a code-based steward at the Foundation for Public Code. And today I'm joined by Eric Herman, a colleague of mine. Hello, Eric. Hello, Jan. Great to be on again. Nice to have you here back in the 12th episode. In the conversation today, we'll talk to two people uh, that have some hands-on experience working with open source in Uganda. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to be joined by Dr. John Black Kabiche, as well as Stephen Masoke, so medical doctor and developer from Uganda. Yes, so let's say hello to them. Yeah, indeed. Hello, welcome. Hello, good afternoon, hello. good morning, good evening for everyone. <laughs> yes. So, um, could you each please, uh, John Black and Stephen, tell us a little bit about yourselves uh, with an emphasis on the sort of the public organizations which you're connected with and a bit about how how open source fits in into your context. You can go first, John Black. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I am a medical doctor and I work at uh, the Uganda Cancer Institute. The Uganda Cancer Institute is a public agency, about 50 or so years, uh, that is leading cancer care, cancer education, cancer research in Uganda. And of late, it's also being chosen to lead cancer control in the East African region under the uh, East African Oncology Center of Excellency. Uh, we do mainly clinical care, of course, as a hospital, but we always use digital solutions. We use software for different things. Uh, and some of these open source solutions, some of them are proprietary software solutions, and they serve different purposes. Uh, I think it's really finding the best tool for for the job uh, and so that's how it fits that's how we get the interest in public code and, and open source so solutions uh, i think we can discuss more about that uh, in the rest of the discussion so steven uh, hello uh, my name is steven senkomagomsoke i'm a software engineer based at uh, I, in uganda i work on out of the met program which is a uh, CDC Centers for Disease Control funded partnership between Macquarie University School of Public Health and the University of California, San Francisco. Essentially, we are is providing uh, health information system support to the Ministry of Health and including uh, building EMRs such as one Uganda EMR, which is uh, based off OpenMRS, which is an open source project. Again, we also support other solutions, including health information exchanges. Personally, I'm a big fan of open source. That's where I first cut my teeth. And I believe it is the way for built in Africa, for Africa by Africans, and also the way that technology can be used by, by democratizing technology. So I could talk about this all the day, but essentially it's a way of sharing the knowledge that we always have. Okay, great. So as a developer in the OpenMRS codebase community, maybe you can describe that community a little bit. Uh, like, for instance, how large is that community? Uh, how many regular developer contributors are in that community? What other kinds of contributors there are? And also, I'm, I'm curious a little bit about how are these developers or contributors of other forms, how are they funded? So I think OpenMRS has a long history. I think it's built off the Reginstrief model. So Reginstrief has been one of the key contributors, also with Ampath, Kenya. And even in Uganda, it was introduced in 2011 through support with the World Health Organization. 
as a means of collecting medical records and understanding actually how to provide service care. So essentially you'd look at, at it as a, a large community with many partners. You have partners in health, Mecom Solutions. You also have Google playing a part in Uganda. Now uh, that PEPFAR is using it in multiple countries across uh, about 14 to 16 African countries, you actually find funded implementers in those countries actually contributing either to the OpenMRS code base or actually using it. So I think you have multi-levels of contribution all the way from clinical to actual development, testing, QA. You find activities from Google Summer of Code. And also, interestingly enough, there is a CBC headquarter-funded mechanism called TAP, which actually is building an HIV reference implementation of OpenMRS. And the idea is really to make it simpler to use and easier to use. So that essentially you could sort of like get OpenMRS and just install it in your facility and start running. Especially, you know, like 80, you know, sort of the 80% rule uh, gets mm-hmm. there. And that one is driven by, again, my colleagues at uh, U- University of California, San Francisco. So you have a large international contributor economy, ecosystem. Uh, I think we even had ThoughtWorks at the time, which uh, ended up contributing to BAMNI, which BAMNI took the EMR, which is OpenMRS, with a lab system. And uh, now it's called UDU. I think it was called Open... It was an open source inventory and logistics so that you have a complete end-to-end hospital management system. So if you look at it, you have like contributions at multiple levels in different directions, which is sort of a healthy ecosystem of providers who are, again, targeting both the public sector in public health facilities and the private sector where possible. In Uganda, I think we have one of the largest implementations with about 1,300 public health facilities using Uganda EMR distributions installed at the facility, digitizing medical care. Some of them have point of care where you actually do integration with labs and things like that. So if you look at it, even in Uganda, it's still a complex implementation where you have basic functionality with extensions to actually sort of try to digitize the healthcare provision and make it more efficient. And all of it is open source, at least in Uganda. So some implementers, many of the implementers actually contribute their code back, which I think in essence is a good mantra of the open source community of standing on the shoulders of giants and actually feeding these giants so that they are stronger. I think right. it, it, once we maintain this, that spirit, it is, it is really key in uh, driving the adoption and uses of open source because it's many of us working together. Uh, and also, I think uh, if I were a vendor in that ecosystem, I wouldn't want to maintain my branch. I would want that pushed back upstream so that maintenance is also shared by the rest of the development community. Yes. Although it's a, I think even if you look, look at OpenMRS as one way, truly, say, I mean, many vendors feel that they are big enough to go on it on their own. Like we know sure. Google forked the Linux kernel for Android. And now sure. they've reached a, reached a point where they cannot benefit from the enhancements in Linux. I think it's a proverb, right? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, we go together. I think the idea is even if going together is more work, you end up, I, I, like I say, to the promised land with many more happy people. So rather than going it alone continuously, you have to come back for those who are slow and make sure that we are moving together. I think that's 
the key ethos that at times is lost even by the big vendors and they get to pay for it. So you don't fork, just build on top, however difficult or hard it is. I think that's where we sort of, you know, open source now sort of gets, uh, how do you call it? A, you know, everybody says, feed the giant on whose shoulders you're standing. That's the key. So I think it's important to, for all of us to keep the spirit and say, if I benefit from this, I should pay my tax and say, give back 10 to 20%. So that it can keep moving forward. I think not many people think of it that way, but it's important to keep giving back to strengthen the foundations that we are building on, especially in the technology space. And with that in mind, how does it, because you mentioned OpenMRS and you also called it Ugandan MRS, like what is the difference between them and what is shared and how are they playing together? Uh, between OpenMRS and? And Uganda MRS. Oh, so Uganda EMRS. Ah, okay. Uh, EMR, right. Okay. So I think the way to think about it, I tend to go back to Linux. I think it's my favorite open source project. Obviously, apart from the PHP space where like everybody smiles, everybody hates PHP, but sort of runs the world. But if we look at Linux, right? Everybody knows Linux and so on. But Linux and the team around him released the Linux kernel, right? The Linux kernel is taken by providers such as Red Hat, which does Fedora and I think CentOS which is sort of discontinued. You also have uh, Ubuntu, which is a, a Debian. Even Apple has its own Debian roots. So each of those are sort of layers on top, making Linux more friendly. And if you take Ubuntu, you actually have other providers like Kubuntu, Poop from System76. So they are layers really providing more and more functionality. So for us, uh, Uganda EMR is looked at as a layer on top of OpenMRS, wrapping it and customizing it for the Ugandan context. And our ethos is also, we do not have any custom functionality in within Uganda EMR. We push it down into OpenMRS and OpenMRS community modules. I think that has been a key success factor five years down the road, because when OpenMRS releases a new version, Uganda EMRS just turn it on, like let's start using it because essentially we do not have any customizations. We are contributing to that foundation. So I think it's really important to keep that. It's hard by the way, don't think it's easy because many times it takes a lot more work, but like I said, we go together, thus we get farther. Great, thanks. So John Black, so as a doctor, What's attractive about open source software, especially in the public hospital and, and public institutions that you're working? What makes the open source angle attractive? Um, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, and by the way, I'm a medical doctor, but I'm also a researcher in, yeah. uh, in health informatics and, and digital health. So I might speak a language that might not be purely uh, clinical, but there's a few things that for example, the fact that uh, open source software is not controlled by a single person, which means that it is being audited and being checked by many different people. I think this is good for ensuring, you know, that there are no lousy security things that are, you know, left in production software. This can easily, you know, go into, into a proprietary software package. But in open source solution, you have many different eyes and many different organizations, some of them are more technologically advanced compared to your organization. So I think I feel more comfortable having this, especially when it comes to healthcare, where you know you have patient information that has to be protected, you know, really like how you protect financial information. So I think security is, is very important. 
it's unfortunate that you know we coming from a clinical environment we do not fully understand uh when we say open source what is open about it so it's really from the face value it sounds like oh this is not a very good thing because i want my medical records to be not open you know right. uh, and that can be a right. problem so for me like I, I this is why i also said in the beginning that i'm a medical doctor but also a digital health person so i do understand and my role is to tell people what we mean by open source it's not open in the public that people are going to be reading clinical records and i think people have to, we all you know working in the open source community have to make these things clear and we say you know when it comes to security this actually is a more attractive solution because it has been audited and checked by many people and people who have uh, you know more skills than the hospital that you might be working in so i think that's one thing uh, security wise the other is really i think a cost perspective especially when you talk about uganda and africa and other uh, less uh, developed countries that might have a lot of resources many of the non open source solutions for clinical uh, for clinical care like emrs are, are ridiculously expensive and the upfront cost is going to be too high and especially if you go to a place like you know the uganda cancer institute or a similar hospital in uganda where we are starting with these solutions so we're not going to it doesn't make sense for me to pay for an enterprise solution that costs you know millions of dollars that offers a whole range of services which i don't even have yet you know you tell me we're going to do health information exchange and we're going to do data analytics and we're going to give you this dashboard and we're going to give you these ai features but i don't need those yet because i'm really just starting to to uh, but they can't package them and say we're giving you this and therefore you're going to pay a little a smaller fee so so that i think becomes a, an advantage that here you can pick packages you can customize them to your context and say for my hospital i'm going to use uganda emr it's focusing on on let's say you know patient administration and focusing on uh, drug administration and drug management and i'm not going to you know focus on bidding for example i'm a public hospital i don't do a lot of bidding features and if you're getting a package proprietary solution that has all the things you have to pay for all of them even things that you don't need so i think the flexibility in picking the things that you need the fact that open source solutions have been audited and looked at by other people and they're all using it i think that's those are some of the attractive features but like i said they might be attractive to me as clinician who also has an understanding of the technology world but for the pure clinician you might have to explain a bit more what that means and get them uh, happy with us with the proposed solution yeah. and is that the biggest advantage from your perspective that you can pick and choose what pieces you want or have you also been able to sort of influence the development and get pieces that weren't there and now now you have them because you wanted them and asked for them uh, yes indeed so that's also another advantage at uh, for example you can easily get developers of uh, of Uganda EMR within Uganda quite easily because the community is big and they are all over the world they are spread all across and you can easily get them and say uh, you know are you familiar with with open MRIs? can you add this feature for me i've worked on a, on a customization of open MRIs for the Uganda Cancer Institute traditionally open MRIs has been used a lot in management of infectious diseases hiv tb malaria that's where its history is and not so much in non communicable diseases but when i needed to do chemotherapy management in open MRIs i was able to get a person sit with them explain a little bit about how things work in, in cancer care and you know inpatient and we were able to 
to add a few extra things in there. And, and then we, we push this back to the community and say, hey, uh, can you add in the data dictionary concepts that are to do with cancer care? Can you add in the drug dictionary chemotherapy, chemotherapeutic drugs? And I think another person will come later who wants to use open MRS in cancer care in another place, they will benefit from this interaction as well as me benefiting from getting these features added with ease. One of the, the challenges that we get in digital health solutions in Uganda and countries like that is that there is no technical support. That's usually a very big issue that you can't, you buy, you get a license from some international company and you can't get them. Even, you know, like time, zone, time differences can be a problem for you to get them on phone to help you with a thing that you need. But most, uh, many times it's about you being only a very small part of their client base that they say, you know what, it's just costing us so much to support you and we're not going to do that. And so there's, there's all these issues. So having access to, to developers and, and having access to a community that is close to you, speaks the same language as you, you can walk to their office, that's, that's attractive. Indeed. I see that uh, we have a question in the chat. Do we want to bring that on? So Boris, I've heard from Decidim, which is an open participatory platform, democracy platform, that they actively follow up with their reusers. So trying to get them to contribute back to the code base and asking, how do you entice vendors to give back? Do you have any strong measures for that or just a good culture? Is that one for you, Stephen, maybe? Well, that's a tough one, right? Because I think the idea is strong measures never work. I think it has to be part of your ethos, part of your, of the spirit of using, I mean, of using this. And I think it's a public, you know, it's a public good. It's, it's sort of like you want to be a good citizen. I think that is a better message because many people actually assume that open source is code. And I think I'd also like to debunk that myth that while code is the starting point, you know, I think you've had this discussion before open practices like the European software, uh, the EU also supports uh, bug finding in projects like Symfony and Google Summer of Code. How do we get more open source contributors? I think it's more a movement whereby you are doing this to look after my neighbor and my brother and my sister who's close by. I think it's more an ethos and vendors can do a lot, in my opinion, to actually drive, to strengthen this foundation. I mean, the reality is all of us have had the log4j bug, right? That happened some time ago. It is the most widely used logging library. But why isn't this vendor, I mean, a lot of the successful open source projects you find, you find that there's a commercial arm that actually directly feeds back and actually contributes to strengthening this base on which, you know, I think it's that, it's that cyclic nature you can make a lot of money, but if you have a weak foundation, it will break. And I think that also a challenge is vendors come for projects. I think that is also another problem. It's customized for a very narrow solution. They make extensive customizations to the code base to fix their issue. Once that's done, it's difficult to take back because it has been heavily hacked. Like you take a car and strip out the seats and you know make some, you know, you make a Frankenstein right it's difficult to contribute that back because these changes are like so frankenstein i think the idea is if you can't i think it's important to say i can't give you back this whole car because i've stripped it and changed it so much but however 
here's my contribution. Here's funding for some of you. I mean, you have to pay back somehow in the community because then it, it's a cyclic. Uh, I think that's cyclic. I don't know. This is, this is, I think, more spiritual and ethos rather than code and technology, but that goodwill multiplies. You know, I think that that's the key. Yeah, is just pay back, pay ten percent, and everybody else. They call it tight, call it whatever you do. Just plow it back into those foundations to strengthen them. Yeah, I agree with Stephen uh, that uh, it's really more like a movement, uh, and it has to be a culture that people appreciate that they benefited from this. It's a public good. It's collective effort, and that they want to give back. There is indeed many vendors who run away with open source solutions and then they make them their private thing and they don't want, it's like intellectual property. And that's, you know, the open source solutions, I remember the first time I would, you know, get Ubuntu and it says, you can take it, you can break it down, you can, you can do whatever you want. You can even make it for, for commercial uh, use. That's a, the attractive thing. Uh, and so you'll get some people who will go with that and, and not want to give back. But I think, for example, the OpenMRS community has done a very good job of trying to tell people this is a public good. We, we meet in, in conferences, we preach this gospel, if you may, of, uh, of a community <laughs> and, and helping many different people. I think also the other important aspect that we should have is uh, the interoperability and the, and the collaboration between the people and the processes that they do, because that makes it easy to give back. If I, for example, code my diseases differently and I put it back and other people don't code them the same way, then it's not going to be of any use. You know, when you say code your diseases, in this case, you mean assign an alphanumeric value to, exactly. to represent them. Yeah. So, so like, uh, like data yes. dictionaries, yeah. if the metadata, if it's not the same, mm -hmm. then becomes difficult, becomes useless for you to put it back. But if you look at the flow and you have the same metadata structure, the same, uh, it becomes easy to, to put back. So I think we should also facilitate that so that people who want to give back its actually of use. I think that's also an important thing. Interoperability between people and organizations before we get interoperability at the software level and you know being able to share and to use the same code. So assigning codes to diseases, is that a concrete example that, that really comes from your experience? Uh, or is it, that is, it is a concrete example. And, and uh, I think uh, Stephen will, tell, will speak about the concept dictionary that we're using in OpenMRS that we are trying to get uh, you know um, everyone to feed into so that it's first of all comprehensive and therefore whoever wants it can find value in it but also it's it's a way for people to contribute so if you make a concept dictionary that you know disease is one of, of, of the things but it's also symptoms it's also drugs procedures and if you put that from your use case as uganda emr for example and you find that the team that is working on kenya emr is using 90% of the same concepts, it becomes easy for you to share. And you can even get from what they're doing if you have a lot of overlap and a lot of, of commonalities. If on the other hand, everything is completely different, you call this disease one and the other person calls it two, you give me the solution that you're using and it doesn't work. So I think that is also an important aspect of uh, allowing uh, reuse and, 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 and interoperability. And I think just to add on, I like every disease in the world is coded. That's why you have ICD-9, you'll hear ICD-10. Like, I'm not a medical doctor, but you have to pick up these things as a, as a, in the domain you work in. There's ICD-11. That's infectious disease coding. You go into LoInc, which is, uh, I think, lab, whereby every lab test is coded. 
you go into SNOMED. So almost every speciality has its own way of communicating that tuberculosis is tuberculosis. So the open MRS concept Bixen tries to bring together all these different concepts into a single place that can be used. And that's why you will find it provides the infrastructure, but the actual usage, like I'll give an example of ORI, which is open MRS HIV reference implementation, one of the projects you know, that, that is happening in the community. The idea is 80% of HIV care and treatment and testing is sort of done the same way. There may be a few differences, but across the world, everybody sort of follows WHO guidelines or UNAIDS guidelines and so on. So if you take all that information, and this is the hard part, if you take WHO, UNAIDS, and what maybe five or six countries are doing, you could build a product that provides an 80% for those countries. And if you release that as an open MRS package, it means that when a country is starting, remember open source, even if the code is free, there are costs in getting a person who knows it, bridging that gap between what John Black says, and I'm happy to be on this call with John Black because he's a clinician with informatics experience. So you also need an informatics software developer or myself with some clinical experience so that essentially we have enough overlap to understand each other. I think that's where most people, that gray area is where a lot of the costs occur. What is the cost of translation between the two? Because they're overlapping disciplines. So you need to have enough knowledge to sort of reduce that. I'll call it friction because it truly is friction. Because the doctor is saying, I, why can't you code this fast enough? It's ICD-10 and there are 10 diseases. But at the same time, he's telling you, I also want lab tests. I also want... So those are like, to him, it's a single domain, right? I have a patient. I send him for tests. I get a clinical analysis. And I can even talk NCDs in a single visit. But each of them is actually a separate domain on itself. So reducing that friction between the technical people who don't know what those domains are, that overlap is where open source and value has to be added. So like going back to Linux, the Linux kernel on its own is useless to you. Like even if you've got it and compiled it, what can you use it for? You want it in your smartwatch with not, and doing watch things, or you want it in your factory doing watch, you know, factory monitoring and machine monitoring, which means it's talking to those different machines, which John Black called codifying. So there are companies that do that. I think ABB, which says, as long as it's a motor or as long as it's moving, we can control it. So they have the expertise in talking to all these machines and can build you some Linux systems which can monitor your factories and run your machines and, you know, things like that. So I think that overlap is very important to actually understand one, it's not just the code, like John Black said, it's the processes and practices, not technology, but of treatment, even of the patients, right? Are your patients getting their care from their phones? Is it self-service? Are you, do you have to talk to each of them? Are you going to do language translation? Are there some uh, customs and, you know, social norms that have to be followed? You know, there are so many things over and above the code that actually have to be taken into account that the code is just the starting point. Those practices and knowledge and information is codified in the code as workflows. You can, so you can find four different workflows in one health facility for four different kinds of people. And we've seen that. Even for Uganda EMR, we find four different workflows, point of care, retrospective, some mix of retrospective and point of care, 
ETC because there are different audiences for even different diseases. Because with TB, you have to keep people isolated and away from each other because it's highly infectious. For HIV, it's okay. For mother and child, you also have to take special care that they're comfortable because they're delicate and they can't wait too long for immunization. You have lots of babies crying. So essentially, you have to get them out of the clinic as quickly as possible. So each of those puts constraints on the systems that you're building, which you can never know if you're not in that health facility. I once went to train a doctor who abandoned us, and we could understand because there was a line of 100 mothers who had brought their children for immunization. Like there is no way a doctor is going to give you time to discuss EMR when their core training is saying there's a, there's a line outside. So I think those are also important because it is just the tech and code that we look at is just the beginning. Everything else, the practices and so on around it, very important. So even that, that cannot be stolen. So that's what I call the spirit and ethos. That's what keeps it going. And you touch upon it a little bit, and I want to go back to it because you talked about the costs. And from your perspective, what is the difference in running and procuring and running open source software the way you do it compared to perhaps a more traditional procurement of software? In five years, you sort of end up at the same place. I mean, the, the idea is this, right? And I'm a big fan of open source, right? But I pay for value which improves my speed. I don't know if I'm making sense. I think the perfect marriage is open source is an extreme completely closed software proprietary is another extreme. You have to find the perfect balance for your needs that adds value. I think John Black will tell you, he's, he's just saying I'm a medical doctor. He has configured Asterix, ODK Central, messaging, digital messaging. So he's not just your regular run-of-the-mill doctor who is interested in it. That's, you know, he's not saying much, but I want to keep pulling him in. He says, if you can't do it, I will try to do it myself, and you don't want you know, it's sort of that pressure from a technology person saying, if a doctor is willing to leave whatever he's doing to do this, how else can I improve? And I think that in public code, that is what is underestimated. Maybe John Black. I'd like you to specifically talk about those challenges because you've configured more systems than many software developers and systems admin in your lifetime. So this is an, an issue. So uh, you talked about the, the communication and why sometimes I'm like, okay, let me try to do this myself because you know, the, the developer is not understanding what I need to have. And this is also very common if you are working with proprietary software because it is designed to address a well-defined, uh, usually quite narrow commercial issue. And because people are used to, okay, it's done, and then we ship it and people buy it and they use it as it is and they adjust to it and how it works as opposed to trying to customize, then it becomes hard to say, okay, you know what, this thing works, it, it delivers this, but I want this other different bit because of how the, my workflow is, because of my circumstance. And then, you know, you have that lack of flexibility that you need, and that can be a challenge. Either you, you have to pay a lot of money for it, or you have to go out and do it yourself, <laughs> like I try to do. But that is an important thing. So the communication and the flexibility are important limitations. Going back to what uh, Jan asked about procurement, for us in, in, in healthcare, we... We don't want to get ourselves involved in developing software. We want to leave that to the developers. Uh, and many times you find that, you know, we'll say, we begin from what we want done. So we say, we want this service. 
And then the developer or the vendor comes and says, I'll bring you something and does that. And if they can't find it off the shelf, either as a proprietary software, closed source, or as open source, they'll come and do it. And then eventually you find that you are in between, as, as Stephen said, you have a few software solutions that are open source and you have others that are you know, proprietary. The good thing is that sometimes you can easily you know, interoperate these two and then you can, you can work out. Usually it is easier to go from the open source side to the proprietary side uh, as opposed to the other way around. But for us in procuring these solutions as healthcare organizations, we don't want to involve ourselves in how each of these works. We want a package that you bring in. And that can be a problem if you have, for example, how open source solutions are managed and you have different packages sitting in different repositories and then someone has to compile them into especially to people who are used to downloading a word processing application and like double click the, you know, the .exe file and it, it runs. And now you have to, you get Lego bricks and you have to build something out of it. So that, that can be a problem sometimes. And if you don't have a person like me who is going to say, yeah, I know there's this part and there's that part. Sometimes you get sold a thing where they say, you know, that is not possible. So you have to adjust and work with this. Mm-hmm. And for me, usually I come in and say, but I know, and I've seen it, that we can also add this feature, so you should give it to me. So there's a bit of negotiation if you're dealing with solutions like this, as opposed to, um, yeah, I think many of the proprietary solutions, they're packaged in a way people are used to. You get an application, you get an executable, you double-click it, and things work out of the box. I don't know. And I know that now uh, OpenMRS is trying to go that line, trying to package and give it to us in a way that... uh, but there's also a lot of maintenance and getting new uh, improvements that you need to keep pulling and pre- keep adding. So there is, you need to find a balance and a lot more um, research on usability, on, on how easy it is for people to pick up solutions, but also training local capacity so that people can uh, easily uh, uh, work with these solutions, I think is important. And also maybe to add, a lot of the solutions were not designed to work together. An EMR was not designed to work with an IVR. Uh, the IVR was designed, you call in, you answer ETC, but if you want an EMR to initiate a call to an IVR, that's like, that's friction because now in public health, I think, which is a challenge is we're getting more and more integrated. Everybody says, make it as easy as Facebook. Yeah, Facebook, they've spent a few hundred million to get to that where you just paste something and it works. So even that doesn't work continuously and all the time, you know, so... I think the idea really is to find a balance that provides value. There will always be pain. I think, you know, the idea is people want zero pain and they end up with a lot of pain. I think the idea is to have some pain which you're not happy with, but which you're conti- as long as you're delivering value. I think the key thing is you, there has to be some discomfort because most of what you're doing is novel, not like the coronavirus, but it is brand new. It has not been seen in your context, in your environment, you know. So I think that that's the key then for, for a lot of solutions. And it's difficult because many times every assumption you make is wrong. Every assumption is proven to be like slightly different or it will not work within this constraint. I mean, we work in healthcare. That essentially means that we have to follow guidelines written for care and treatment, let's say. And these guidelines change. So if you code for a certain guideline, you have no idea how it will change. So it's challenges like those on paper are very easy to do, 
But once you turn them into digital, it throws the whole model off, like totally, like everything you knew is, you know, coding for, you know, antenatal and you say the maximum age, uh, the minimum age for a child is 13. That's AMC, right? I think we got a call from a hospital. So somebody said, yeah, we can't enter antenatal. We have an 11-year-old here who's come for half a trimester. And they're saying, no, but it's, it's not possible. But they're telling you, but the child is here. And they're <laughs> right here, exactly. yeah. So all those things are, you know, to actually write good software, you have to have constraints and the focus. But so you can't just open it up to each and, you know, so it's sort of that continuous battle, which changes every day, every week and so on. So it's, it's an ever-evolving beast. I would call it the Hydra. You cut off one head, two more grow in its place, and you're wondering, like, how, um, how else am I going to handle this? So. Well, it sounds like that's your job as a vendor to work with the institutions to figure out what their needs are and do the customization around that. And I would imagine from some of the things you said earlier that part of that is also that you can push that back into the main line, perhaps as a module, but then leverage that to get another client or another institution to do that. So I can see how that giving back and that need for mass customization, it's not just mass production where we copy the software to each place, but it's mass customization where we figure out what's needed, that there's a critical role for vendors there that you're describing. I want us to talk uh, about something that was brought in the chat, uh, and I think it's a little tangentially related to this, but uh, one of the questions that is being asked here is, can you comment about the open source code documentation? In essence, how do you maintain and track the code additions and the new features with the documentation? So as you're doing these customizations, what role does documentation play and how is that given back as well? Yeah, if it's not documented, it doesn't exist. That's a famous saying that has happened. Or So it's not just the code. So you have different stakeholders. So you've got, I think for Uganda EMR, we've got our code. It's public. We use the OpenMRS document. Here's the, here's the, we call it API. Here's how you can use it, etc. We've also got user manuals, which package, like the way you drive a car, right? You want to put in a key and turn it and it starts. But if you get the, the button car, they tell you the button has to be in the car, close to it. You know, you sort of learn. So there, is, there, there are multiple levels also of that documentation. Is, is it for a developer? Is it for an implementer who is technically savvy and is trying to put his software to use? Or is it for an end user? And that keeps changing. Like It's always behind. That's the key. It's always behind because you have to solve this problem today or this challenge today. And many times the documentation sort of catches up along the way and many, I mean, at times it doesn't but the idea is you want to spend as much time possible because it pays off in the future i had uh, somebody who said i documented this thing and my future self thanks me for doing it i think that is if we're still in the ethos we just say document it for your future self whether you'll be an implementer or a user because it pays off many times but guess what documentation is one of the hardest, hardest, ultra hardest things to do. It is so difficult that most people just choose to ignore it and say, your code should be self-commenting, etc. But if you have a complex system that has SNOMED codes, ICD-10, 
you know, codes from multiple sources and can extend to another 30 different mappings, if you don't write it at both a technical and user level, then you face that challenge. And when somebody tries to use this coding for something else, they cannot because they have no idea how to use it properly. So, I mean, it's a challenge we have with prioritizing, I think also in public health, the 80-20 rule. Like we care about the 80%, but the 20% are the ones who, you know, tend to have impact, most marginalized and so on. So you try to do as well and good as you can, but it's a continuous challenge. Like I wish I had three people to write documentation because even for us, we have a world distilled user manual, but each time we run into an issue, we say, add that to the user manual immediately because your future self will thank you for it. Is that part of your billing? So when you're working with your clients and developing the features for somebody like John Black, is that a part of what you bill for? Exactly. I mean, he expects it. it it's not anything. He, To him, and I'll tell people this, estimation is, estimates are an assumption. They are always wrong. Some people think you've done too little for too much. No, until somebody goes to use it out in the field. I mean, for us as a, a grant-funded organization, we just try to push the bar. So for me, I, my background is from the private sector. We try to push the bar to what the private sector would do in a public health setting. Just because it's public doesn't mean it's any less. It actually has to be better because their people are more constrained than they are in the public space. And many times your billing is as good as uh, what's the weather like today? <laughs> like, as good as that, uh... right? Like, you know, so it changes. So the idea is really to try to raise the bar for all the things that you... I mean, like, we can't have a one-to-one -one match. I think that's why the spirit and ethos are very important and saying, I have to do the best, even if it's open source, even if it's for public sector. In fact, if it's for public sector, it has to be way better because the people using this are more constrained than those in the private sector. Right. So I think it's really that. It's part of your billing, documentation, and the very best vendors you find may not produce the very best product, but they have the very best approach to solving problems. Times are complex because of the constraints in the environment, in public health, where we have shared infrastructure, shared tools, lots of, like, we have the low end of everything. Yeah. And, and, and many times... This is an important uh, point about documentation also because of the, the way we get solutions. Again, when you're starting uh, with experimentation and trying and piloting things, one, you get, you get solutions that, you know, began by one group and then they go. For example, like, like for us, we would use solutions for a project and the project ends, but then you don't want to dump it because then, you know, it's, it's useful for the next project. But the person who, who set it up is gone. You know, because the project ended a year ago and the person is gone. So if you did not document it, you have no idea how to start from, from, you know, to use this solution. And then it becomes wasteful to set up a new solution when the other one is already in place. But like Stephen says, it's hard and often uh, ignored. There's, it's been very rare that I get, if I call for providers to come and give me their bidding, they give me proposals for, you know, how much I have to pay for a solution. Very rarely do they include documentation. Very rarely they include user manuals in there. So it's a problem of me who is asking for the solution. And it's also a problem of the vendor for not putting emphasis on this because they're focusing on the, the thing that you see. They're focusing on the functionality and the features uh, when everything is working well. And we forget 
what happens when things stop working and then we have to troubleshoot and so it has to be it has to be preached it has to be communicated so people know that today things are working tomorrow they're not going to work and this person is going to be gone and then everything fails but i think it's something that you learn over time because even when you build a hospital they will not be happy to pay for that they will say you know we're only seeing this functionality why do we have to pay for everything else until when the thing fails and especially if you have funders coming in with donor agencies and they have to push for a standard way of doing things there's for example you know digital development principles for example that are pushing for these as a standard of doing things that you know you should have properly documented solutions you should reuse what is already there you should you know make things that are interoperable and they can be used by multiple people so if if you have this push i think that's another way to going back to to Harun's question how do you address it we need push from different people we need to have it asked from demanded of the developers and the vendors essentially get champions for these things so that continuously they push everybody to be better and but painful like it is really painful so you actually need people who are passionate driven and not willing to give up but it's for the greater good even if not you know you sort of set a standard and then everybody sort of follows and copies and so on so that essentially you want to put copy high quality and with a high bar so that essentially i think that that's the way around it you sort of like try to do as well and so everybody sort of pushed along the quality bar so this might be a sort of leading question uh, perhaps you're going in another direction i don't know so i'll ask it in the code bases you work with like what would you like to see in the terms of evolution of the collaboration that you have in those communities where do you want it to go do you want it to go towards being better documentation or is there something else you want to highlight first or stronger huh. so documentation is i think i am going through a plug here and the plug is really so I work with a PHP framework called Laravel. It's a PHP framework. It's one of the most common, it's like the top two of them. However, Laravel has some benefits. Like the founder is really like dogmatic about great design, great documentation, and they've built a business of tooling around it. And even the ecosystem is great. And the idea is if you have a Laravel problem, there's probably somebody has solved like 80% of it, either free or a paid solution. So even for the code bases I work with I use that as like the benchmark in that it's not only great documentation that's enough what's the ecosystem around it how do we automatically deploy these systems how do we manage them how do we maintain them so the code while important like is sort of the simple part like it's fundamental it is but the greater pain is around tooling like how do we get developers up and running like Uh, before setting up my first open mrs setup in 2015 took me 3 weeks and had 45 steps today we give our team the team i work with at the meds program ships an exe installer for windows like you just double click and follow the steps that required investments but it required us to be dogmatic about how do we provide value to our non technical users remember our, our approach is always how will a data clerk who has to maintain this system do it without training are your error messages good enough is your documentation good enough that kind of thing so when you're scaling out you're thinking how do we simplify this for that end user i think that is a key challenge so it's not only it's documentation it's tooling support 
is trying to make things simple and intuitive, even if they're going to overlap. Like every disease you touch is it, it's like mixing oil, water, spices, and milk. Like for each thing you add, it's bound to destroy everything else because it is like a totally different, not even concept, but it's a totally different mindset. It's a totally different population, totally different expectations, totally different volumes. So like it is a complex mess. I tend to call all software Frankenstein, but health system software is Frankenstein with probably some dragon and it's Frankenstein plus a dinosaur, you know, and some <laughs> space age robot and android because it is that. I mean, it is the nature of, of what it is. It's the nature of the space. It's, it cannot be, there's no simple, easy, streamlined solution, but some hodgepodge mix which works in one place and not another. Like even the facilities are very different. If you went to one health facility and went to the next one, they're like night and day, even the way they are laid out, right? So you can't even say people walk to the reception, then go and see a counselor, then go and see the clinician. They walk into, many times you can find they walk to see the doctor before they even get to the reception because that's how it's laid out. And that's how, you know, so it's that. But I think the ethos comes down to just trying to be better and using standards, even when, you know, at times standards, are, everybody says use standards. I say, yes, use standards, but what value are they adding, right? Everybody says use standards, use SNOMED, use FIRE, use what, use this. At times, the simplest standard is a spreadsheet that just works. So you have to even evolve and mature. I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a good example of this one. Or even us humans went through the stone, agriculture, iron age, industrial, digital age. I don't know where we're going next. But you find some parts of our lives are still so stone age you've got to, you know, you've got to go down to basics. So you, you have like all that range of capability that it's important to say, what's the best I can do to provide this solution? I've got a question for you, John Flack. If there's another clinician similar to you, maybe without your medical informatics background, and they are looking in their practice to get started, what advice would you give them? And what would you say to them for them to start being able to get the benefits of open source in their institution? I think it is important that they have an understanding of the digital world. People shouldn't try to cut corners around that because you, you're either going to be sold a substance solution for a lot more money and you are going to have a lot of pain because you don't know what's possible. You don't know what's there. This is, again, Steve, like Stephen says, this is not very common that you have clinicians who are going to understand the digital world the ICT world. So we have to work better. Ministries of Health and hospitals have to hire software developers and informaticians and have them on their side so they can go and explore. So I think that's the first step. Have an understanding of the solutions, the, the entire ecosystem that you're trying to get into. Get a consultant, if you may. Okay. And then, of course, open source is a good starting point, a good entry point. It could even be a thing that you experiment with as you prepare, as a way to learn the ecosystem, experiment with it so that you know when you go to buy something that is costing a lot of money and is very rigid and not flexible, at least you know that it can fit into what you're looking for. Healthcare IT is quite difficult, as Stephen has mentioned. The stakes are high. We're dealing with patients. We're dealing with lives. There's a lot of uh, rigidity there. You're working with clinicians who are very... Uh, yeah, they are very strong with their opinions, if, if I use a, a more polite term. Um, and it's difficult to change them. 
So it's important that you understand what you're going to give them so that they can easily adapt to it. That is important. And then I think expectation management is, a, is another thing <laughs> quite important to consider. Many times when people are bringing solutions, they think it's going to be like, like Stephen says, it's going to be like Facebook. And it's not. It doesn't work like that. There's pains. There's a, a learning curve. And, you know, clinicians are already used to how they do their things and they're very happy with that and everyone appreciates them. And now they have to figure out where do I click to enter this? And if they've been working with, with a thing that works on paper, for example, you have to give them a reason to change. You have to give them a reason to, to change the way they work. I, I like to look at it as uh, the laws of motion. A body is stationary, will stay stationary until there is an external push. So a person who has been using paper will stay using paper until there is an external push. And this push better be that the solution fits with their workflow. The solution gives an advantage. Sometimes we're willing to do it a little bit extra for some benefit. And that benefit should be something that I care about, right? not something that the funder who is very far off cares about. It should not be something that the Ministry of Health cares about. It should be that I, as the clinician, as the nurse, as the data entry clerk, I care about the benefit, be it in saving my time, be it in helping me prescribe medicines more safely, these small things. The things like aggregation and knowing the number of patients on an epidemiological level, those are for the Ministry of Health. And you can get them if you help me manage the patient that I have. You can get those things down the road. So a person who is starting, I would say, understand the ecosystem, Get people, get consultants who understand the ecosystem for you if you can't. Experiment. Open source solutions are a good starting point and make sure that you are providing value and value that people care about. Okay. And again, it always pays off to have uh, digital solutions. At least that one we can all agree on. Great. Thank you. Well, maybe just add to John Black. Some of the rules are very simple. It comes from the innovator's dilemma. Start small, start simple build on your wins. Don't start with the biggest, most expensive problem you have. Start with small wins that you can throw away and say, like if you want to buy a car, don't start walking around dealerships. Go hire a car for a weekend. It may cost you quite a bit, but you don't know which kind of car you want, that kind of thing. So start small, experiment, and at times you have to invest in that journey. It's not a destination. I think most people assume that when they ask for digital solutions, it's a destination. It's actually a journey because six months from today, I think Schrodinger's cat is a very good example of what healthcare systems are. The moment you bring a solution, it totally, you know, you can't measure the, the energy. You can't know it's there until you touch it. But the moment you touch it, you dissipate energy and it changes. So the moment you introduce a digital solution of whatever form, your whole business process is going to change. So like I said, all assumptions are wrong. So your list of assumptions and needs keeps changing as you keep introducing these solutions along with your environment. So each change you introduce sort of changes it. Thus, you end up, it's like, a, what do you call it? A moving target per se, because essentially it is. Each time you make a change, an improvement, more pain comes out. I think when you're treating, you know, even in ERs, they say, the one who's dying first, then we see what's happening next, but you don't know. So I think that try small, make it simple. It's a journey. It's not a destination. I think with that in mind, that doctor can make improvement. It's a diary with phone calls that can make 80% of the change that they need, and they can stay there. They don't even have to go digital. You know, going digital is great, but at times just managing your appointments in a diary with a person to call every morning, maybe all you need to actually deliver value. So 
I'm a techie, but I also go the other way and say, where can where don't you need tech? Sorry for jumping in. Uh, no worries. That was great addition. We are getting to time here. So we have one question we always end with, and that is, who would you like to see on this show? Who would you like us to interview next? And uh, you can give us a name each. That would be nice. Hmm. I should probably not give a name, but I should give a category. Sure. Uh, I, I like to have uh, people who are managing uh, hospitals. Okay. Yeah. Because they are very influential in making decisions like this. I want to understand the, you know, you could get a person, you could get a director, uh, you know, a, a clinical head of, of a hospital and have an understanding of how they choose digital solutions, because I think that's helpful. And maybe at that same sitting, you have someone else who is from a, from a technical side to have an, an, a sharing of ideas of what goes into that, because, you know, it could be that we are trying to cost save and we're trying to budget to think about the next one year versus thinking for five years ahead, which eventually will save costs. And also things like, how do you get consultants that help you to decide on the best solution? I would like to see that. Yeah, I think mine would also be similar. Uh, I think the biggest challenges are in health and education. So I think whether you're doing health or education as a, a head of a large institution, preferably public, how do you actually choose digital solutions in this fast paced, fast moving environment? Yet government is slow, technology is fast. So those are like two opposing constraints, but how do you make those decisions in that pace? Because usually it's at scale, you're moving slow, the vendor or provider is moving fast, or even if it's internal, I think, you know, at times we always think of vendors, but that internal culture of adopting digital and what successes and horror stories, you know, are there and what guidance would you give? Because we're sort of all in the same boat. I essentially, for us to provide services to government and want to learn more about how to do that much better and improve that because public sector is like 80% of the entire market. Very slow vendor, very slow moving, but they need it the most because it has the largest impact for digital and code. That's some great suggestions. Thank you for that. And it's about time to wrap up. I want to thank you both, Stephen and John Black, for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. And greetings from the Pearl of Africa. Oh, it's great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure for us as well. Thank you. Um, and we have all of our past episodes, uh, both in the video format and also audio-only version of it, if that fits you a little bit better. Yeah. And besides these uh, podcasts, we're also having community calls on Thursday. So if you want to sign up to those, you will find the link to that in the footer on our website. And that's all for today. Thank you, Eric, for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me again.